The Pinball Network is online. Launching the Aussie Pinball Podcast. I'm gonna push it to the limit. Danger, 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 danger. Why jump on a under the water? Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Aussie Pinball Podcast. This is another slightly longer one, but it's in two parts, so you can choose whether to listen to the whole thing at once or break it up into multiple bits. That music in the background is the tribute to Steve Irwin, and that's relevant because on this episode I'm going to be chatting to one Wayne Gillard, who of course is the owner of Mr Pinball and is known worldwide for his spare parts, his cabinet decals, and for those who've been in the hobby for a while, his attempted remake of Medieval Madness, and his attempted manufacture of the Crocodile Hunter pinball machine. In the first part, we're going to chat with Wayne about everything including footy in Melbourne, his favourite holiday spots of course, his favourite music. We'll find out about what he thinks of the current pinball prices and why they keep escalating. Wayne of course is a dealer in Australia who imports for many companies. In the past we had Jersey Jack and he continues as he lists with Chicago Gaming, American Pinball and many others. We talk about the difficulties of selling pinballs in Australia and providing a warranty service for the games he sells Australia-wide and to New Zealand. And in part two of the interview, we're going to chat about his history in purchasing all the assets to the Bally Williams company. On with the interview and welcome Mr Gillard. So we're joined by Wayne Gillard from Mr. Pinball way down in Melbourne, which according to Jesse is the best city in the world, and according to Michael is the second best city. Well, <laughs> other than other than being the capital, you know, the lockdown capital of the world <laughs> for like 400 odd days, um, hopefully things are getting back to normal. But yeah, you know, we've got obviously all the all the uh, outdoor entertainment and all the major capital uh, sporting activities and that that happened down here in Melbourne so it's a great place to live but obviously the weather's not as good as up where you are. It is bucketing down here so don't give us any credit. It's raining here too now. So everyone from Melbourne keeps talking about the party and nightlife. I think one thing that no one's ever talked about that you just briefly mentioned was the sport. Melbournians, their newspaper is 98% sport and then a little bit local news. Uh, You guys are quite fanatical, especially with your AFL. What's your favourite sport? Snake, animal, kangaroo. And what's your favourite car, Australia? Holden! Let me see, that's football, meat pies, kangaroos and holding cars, huh? Right! Well, you sure sound like Australia to me. We are. Well, then you better tell me again, because I just might forget. We love football, meat pies, kangaroos and holding cars. Football, meat pies, kangaroos and holding cars. That's football, meat pies, kangaroos and holding cars. Football and meat pies, kangaroos and holding cars. Which team do you go for? Hawthorne. <laughs> 
but by default because my partner's <laughs> barracks for Hawthorne. <laughs> <laughs> Happy life. Because AFL, uh, if anyone from America is listening, is an institution over here and where people will equate baseball to cricket and uh, our rugby to uh, American football. There's nothing quite like AFL over in the US, is there? Well, you work to earn a living... And if you've never seen Australian rules football or are not familiar with it, I'd get on YouTube and look up Up There Kazali, which is spelt C-A-Z-A-L-Y, and watch the film clip that goes along with this song. It shows some of the highlights of AFL, including the high marks and the physical contact. Um, the other thing is everyone calls, like, if you're in Sydney, you call your football, but it's not AFL, it's rugby league football. And then in some other states, they call their football, but it's actually soccer. Yeah. So it's very confusing about what people go, oh, but what team do you barrack for in football? And then they start <laughs> telling you some soccer team or some rugby league team or something like that. Oh. Or rugby union. Or rugby but the, union only makes, yeah. Yeah, the only one that makes sense to call football is soccer because they use their feet. Scott Sterling, the man, the myth, the, the legend. legend. Three perfect blocks by Sterling and his cat-like face reflex. Everywhere else, it's mainly in their hands. That's it. Yeah, they just sort of, you know, technically throw it, you know, throw it around, and they don't kick it that often. But definitely a lot more exciting and a lot more scoring points in AFL than there is in soccer or rugby league. That's right. But I'll kick and giggle as it's called up here. But anyway, more about Wayne. How long's Mr Pinball been open? Look, I've been around since um, about 1987. So yeah, quite quite a while been doing sort of pinballs. Started into pinballs when I was about 40 years ago. If you don't start making more sense, we're going to have to put you in a home. You already put me in a home. Then we'll put you in a crooked home. It's on 60 minutes. No, where were we? Oh. So, yeah, um, yeah quite, quite, a, quite a while ago. And what qualification did you bring in? Did you have any um, trade qualifications for repairs, etc.? Not so much pinball repairs. It was pretty much like everyone that you sort of learn as you go. I sort of had done electrical, you know, wiring up houses and that sort of stuff um, as an electrician apprentice in the early days, but none of that really has much to do with pinball. What? A minute ago you said blue. Did I say blue? Riggs, you said blue. Well, I meant red. You sure? Uh, look, Raj, we can do it your way if you like. I'm My way! I don't have a client! Raj. <laughs> I'm cutting away. See? All done. Raj, grab the cat. Grab the cat! Get back! Take back! Did some basic electronic stuff. Did some broadcast operators certificate stuff, which is more um, TV, radio station type of electrical stuff, a little bit of electrical engineering stuff, but pinballs are easy to fix. It's just you have to find the fault. Once you find the fault, they're actually pretty easy to fix. So I guess it's experience because you get the same fault that comes along on different machines 
So you're sort of more experience, I think, in this industry rather than qualifications. I remember having a guy working for me who could probably build you a space shuttle, electrical engineer and aerospace engineer and all that, but you'd give him some basic belly lamp board, which is pretty simple, and he'd take hours to try and get the thing working and couldn't understand you know why it wouldn't work because a lot of a lot of um, like pinball is all live power and you're switching the transistors are switching the coils on by ground whereas a, a lot of people are used to turning positive on and off not turning a ground on and off <laughs> pinball design just shows the sensibility when they made it I'm, I'm still stunned by electromechanical games that what they can do with a simple on off relay switch on the playboard is extraordinary and then it continues on from there but pinball's always been complicated in thought but simple in execution i find yeah the old electromechanicals you've got to sort of think that a relay clicks on and a motor moves and it stops at a set of contacts which activates something else it's like a like an, it's an electromechanical computer and you've got to wonder how these guys even jukeboxes how these guys back then in the sort of 50s and 60s actually worked out how to do all that sort of stuff because it's quite complicated when you think about it with all the relays and contacts and everything, particularly those old bingo games with the 24 holes in them, they had like 16,000 different payout combinations and you got to wonder how it worked all that out. They were brilliant. While we're on the repairs and tips... Give us your uh, favourite words of wisdom as a pinball maintenance tip, either for new owners or for owners that have had their game but haven't really done their own maintenance. What, what's your tip for, uh, for looking after machines? Uh, the main thing is keep the playfields clean. Get a magic eraser or a microfiber cloth or whether it be some Nifty or Windex or some Novus and just keep all those black ball lines off the playfield and make sure the balls are clean, don't have any little pits in them or any rust spots or anything like that because it acts like sandpaper and just chews the playfield apart. You can put some wax on it to give it a bit of, bit of protection. Much like your car, playfields are technically like an automotive clear coat. You, you treat your playfield pretty much like you treat your car. If you've got some sort of wax on it, it's going to stop a lot of marks and, and so on and make it easier to clean. Make sure you change the rubbers on it. And the most important thing is fix things as things break. Because what we see when we end up getting a phone call to fix the machine, we come out there and we're not just fixing one fault, we're fixing like 50 faults. Because they all build up and you've got your rubber band on there and you've got some screw put in there on a post. It just ends up being an expensive repair if, if you don't keep on top of it. So much like your car, you service it regularly, so it's reliable for you. And the same with a pinball. You don't want to be fixing, changing rubbers and playing around on a Saturday night when a whole heap of friends and family are over. Good advice. If you had any absolute horror shows return to the shop for a repair that... Could have been simple, but it was made a much more difficult job. We get a lot of things like people, rather than somebody actually buy a part and fix the machine properly, they tend to have a look around their house and see what's around that they can use. Like we had a spoon that was screwed to the bottom of a plunger. Instead of the plunger having a little ball armature bit at the bottom, it had this spoon screwed to the bottom. 
So there is some, we do get some, uh, some really weird stuff that, that I, I guess it worked, but it was the weirdest one we've seen. Michael was mentioning the old uh, no-blow no fuses with the bolts in the fuse holders and the cigarette foil wrapped around a blown fuse. Yeah, uh, we get that all the time. Um, people don't, Even now? Even now, even now. You know, you've got old games. and So what happens with the older games is the wiring starts to sort of break down and the, 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 the copper wires start to turn black just from age and, and amperage, basically. And then they build up a lot of resistance, so they draw more current. That's why people sort of say on those 90s Bally Williams games, they say, oh, all those IEC, you know, pushed the wire in from the back connectors, you know, they're all crap and all that. Why'd they use them and so on? It's not so much that. I've got games here that have the original GI connectors on them with no burn in them or anything. It just, a lot of people are putting the wrong globes in them. Like they go down to the local electrical shop or go to the local service station and they buy a globe that looks like a 44 globe. Mm -hmm. Instead of it being 250 milliamps, it's like three watts. So they put those in their games and then what happens is each circuit's designed to carry a certain amount of amperage. So if there's eight eight strings and 250 milliamps, it might be like four amps, for example, and people are putting three watt globes in there and then they're, they're overdrawing the current and that's what's burning out all of the connectors. So a lot of wrong globes, um, a lot of old wiring, certainly. The game's back, they're never designed to last this long. I mean, the, the reliability pretty much put most pinball manufacturers out of business because even recently, you know, I've seen mid-90s games like Fishtails and Getaways and all those sorts of games all being played, uh, being operated commercially. You know, games that are like 30 years old, They whereas they're not, they weren't buying new games to replace them with because the reliability of those old games was, uh, was, was pretty good, pretty well engineered back then. Tell me, what's your favourite Aussie music? Probably John Farnham, I would say, which a lot of people oh, overseas probably don't know that name. So get onto YouTube and uh, Google John Farnham. the other ones probably bought up in that era with Cold Chisel and, and Jimmy Barnes. Listen a lot to John Farnham stuff. Yeah, Farnsy. So are we talking about Sadie the Cleaning Lady days or are we talking about Whispering no, all, Jack? No, all sort of later stuff, more Whispering Jack sort of stuff. Oh, Sadie the Cleaning Lady I bet, he, I bet he regrets that Sadie, the cleaning lady song. <laughs> Made him famous, though, I guess. The uh, amazing thing about John Farnham was he was down and out with no career, and mm. his manager, Glenn Wheatley, who sadly recently passed away, yep. had such faith in him that he mortgaged his home to produce the Whispering Jack album, which went on to be a worldwide success, I think. And, and also, probably don't know either, but Ross Wilson from Mondo Rock 
He's good friends with uh, John Farnham, and, and he wrote some of the songs on that album. And Dragon. The boys from Dragon actually wrote Age of Reason. So there's yep. some fantastic songwriters contributed to that. As John said, he, he can't write, but he can certainly sing. He puts a lot of motion into it. And, uh, yeah, even um, even like Help by the Beatles. And- Help me if you can, I'm feeling down. And I do. see him live if you look up anything live certainly uh you know he can fill stadiums over and over again and he was our king of pop in the days when we had king of pop exactly yes he was (laughs) yeah for sure so and tell me where's your favorite aussie holiday spot apart from on your couch in melbourne I like Hamilton Island but I've got a a beach house down at Apollo Bay in Victoria so it's far enough away where we don't get that many people down there for weekends it's about three hours drive to get down there it's starting to get a bit populated now because during COVID everyone was moving into regional and coastal towns to get away from lockdown and all that sort of thing mm. and Hamilton Island uh, of course up in the beautiful Whit Sundays of Queensland the yep. whole string <laughs> of islands uh on the way to the Barrier Reef. But, uh, yeah, we've been to Hamilton a few times. You, you drive your golf carts around everywhere to get from one place to another. Because it's pretty steep. Uh, <laughs> some of the roads are steep and it's sort of like yeah, it might only be a, sh- a short w- walk if it was flat. But uh, but if you're having to sort of walk back to your hotel from the harbour, yeah, it's, it's quite an incline, yeah. uh, that's for sure. So you need your little golf cart. And for the golfers, there's a wonderful golf course on the island next door called Dent Island. And they suggest that you take at least a dozen balls with you because if any of your golf shots are off the fairway, they're basically off the cliff and into the ocean. So it's a, that's, it's a that's challenging right. golf course. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, nice and warm humid and that sort of thing i guess it's uh you know it's like like going to your to your phuket or your you know or your, or your singapore type of places bali, probably, probably bali at home probably more expensive though going yeah. to hamilton island than uh than those places and the airport runway is very short so you come in in your big plane and you land and then the brakes get slammed on straight away as you head for the cliff um, <laughs> and then they get to the end and they have to turn around and come back uh, so it's quite a short runway. Roger. Huh? Request vector. Over. What? Flight 209er clear for vector 324. We have clearance, Clarence. Roger, Roger. What's our vector, Victor? Our radio clearance. Over. That's Clarence. Over. Over. Roger. Huh? Hey, give me your uh, tip for an Aussie movie that people should watch. You know, look, I, I guess you can't beat, you know, Priscilla, Queen of the oh. Desert, as a, as a classic Aussie movie, or... Or the castle actually comes to mind. Everybody um, has chosen yeah. the castle, but I love Priscilla. I saw that movie and just thought it was fantastic. As much as a, a scenery-based piece to show the uh, parts of Australia that you don't normally see, as much as the music and costuming, absolutely Ex- extraordinary. Exactly. This is the story of three hard-working guys. We dress up in women's clothes and parade around, mouthing the words to other people's songs. That, my darling, is my most treasured possession in the whole wide world. But what is it? Well, a few years ago, I went on a pilgrimage backstage to an ABBA concert, hoping to grab an audience with Her Royal Highness Agnetha. Well, 
When I saw her ducking into the lady's loo, naturally I followed her in. And after she'd finished her business, I ducked into the cubicle only to find she left me a little gift sitting in the toilet bowl. What are you telling me? This is an abbot-turd? Yeah, and that's more an, an international movie um, where the, the castle, I guess, was more, you know, a classic Australian movie. So yeah, people think you make a fortune out of selling pinballs, but you know, I, I just paid my bills for a container of games that come in, and I used to be paying twenty four hundred dollars for a twenty foot container, and now it's fifteen thousand dollars. And then on top of that, I've got a nice bill for five thousand, where there, there's nothing's connected properly overseas. Meaning, from when the container gets picked up for it to go on the train to the dock for example it gets picked up and it goes to the to the train but there's no train or or the boats not sailing for another two weeks because it's been delayed and then they charge you a couple of hundred dollars a day for 42 days for the container sitting on the dock or sitting at a holding yard and there's not a damn thing we can do about it. And also what's been happening lately is US Customs have been picking containers at random for unpack inspections on export, which I've never come across before. Why would they care what's leaving the country? More about what's coming in, I would I would, I would expect that to happen. So, And they use third-party companies and they charge whatever it is they want to charge and you're paying another few thousand dollars for them to um, unpack the container. And they only unpacked the first two feet of it, yet charged, you know, $5,000. So unfortunately, we're, we're sort of uh, the shipping things at the moment are a little bit out of control cost-wise, which is affecting pinball prices. Even the uh, pinball manufacturing, which I'm still a little bit involved in, the companies that make, say, the pinball legs, for example, was saying that it used to cost them 60 cents a pound for the raw materials to make a pinball leg. And the pinball leg used 3.2 pound, including the scrap. Um, and now it's like a dollar eighty a pound. So it's, you know, it's three times the price, but that's just the raw material cost has gone up. On top of that, the company that plates them has gone up. The trucking companies that take them to the plater and back has gone up everything's gone up so uh, the cost of building these games now has gone up by about 30 30 percent uh, minimum to to manufacture and the staff they used to have staff over in we're talking about the us which you know you have a lot of um, unskilled labor or hiring different nationalities over there uh, that necessarily on award wage uh, list um, where they used to be hiring for around the nine to twelve dollars an hour and getting plenty of people working for that, but now they're paying twenty-five to thirty dollars an hour to get people, and they're not staying around. They're like taking off and getting a job somewhere else because there's people paying huge amounts of money to just to get staff because they just can't get staff. Uh, so all that's having a, a, an effect on on everything. Pinball legs I've been waiting since July last year to get, and they've only just arrived now. And and it's it's yeah, it, I'm not sure where it's going to head. Hopefully things might start to settle down in the next few months or so. But as you know, 
Uh, inflation in Australia has gone up by 5.1% in the past few months, which basically means you know, that your current wage that you get, you know, it's costing you 5 5% more per week for everything you're buying. You've always been a distributor for Bally Williams with your history. You took on Jersey Jack for quite a while. Now you're with Chicago Gaming and American Pinball. Uh, what are the companies uh, is Mr. Pinball dealing with at the moment? So at the moment, so we, we do the Chicago Gaming remakes. Uh, we also do the American Pinball. We also do uh, Pinball Brothers, right. which is the Alien. The other one is the, there's one out of a new one coming out of uh, Spain, um, a Spanish right. game, as you know, that was originally Hoops and it's sort of been rebadged, still basketball sort of theme. Um, we've got a sample game of that coming over. You know, it's more a basic game, ideal for, for home. You know, definitely not, you know, your your high-end collector that wants the, the in-depth rules and that sort of stuff. You know, but it's because, because most pinballs now over here are 13,000, 14,000. If we've got something that's, you know, under 10,000, because the price of used games, you pay 8,000, 9,000 for a second-hand getaway now. So if you can get a brand new game. Um, and with the size of Australia and the fact that you will send them absolutely everywhere, how do you go with the tech support? Especially I think nowadays there's a lot of first-time buyers picking up brand new in-box machines and getting it home and then they may live 1,600 kilometres from you. How, how do you deal with that? Yeah, look, I mean, it's a challenge. We shipped some to New Zealand uh, the other day. We shipped some to Tasmania the other day, WA. I guess, look, every customer is different. Some customers are flexible enough. We could do a FaceTime call. We could go through and, and look like we're looking over the machine on, on the FaceTime phone call and we can sort of see by looking at it what it's doing or what it isn't doing and we can try and troubleshoot it as best we can, send parts and so on. As you know, in Australia, I'm not sure how it works around the rest of the world, but it's classed as a commercial coin-operated product, which I know we have what they call Australian consumer laws and that sort of stuff, which some people say, well, you know, it's a consumer product, I'm using it for consumer use, in which case it should be protected under consumer law, which before COVID, that was getting to be a little bit of a problem uh, where people would say, well, you know, my pinball I've bought nine months ago is broken down the warranty doesn't include on-site service or any of that sort of thing so we'd tended to do with people who were new to pinball was offer them what we called an extended warranty which i guess is a little bit like what jersey jack used to do uh, jack when he had pinball sales or was running pinball sales at the time where he had some gold delivery service or some sort of thing where you paid an extra amount of money and that gave you in-home service so we'd get a tech to come out and fix your machine within that like gap cover like over here where you go to the doctor and you got to pay the difference between what the government gives you gives the doctor and what the doctor charges we were doing that for a little while sometimes we just have to get send someone out to fix it sometimes we'll get the machine picked up and we'll we'll bring it back or we'll send them apart but Definitely is a challenge, pinball machines, when you're selling them, you know, interstate. But luckily, it's sort of minimal and you sort of have to put whatever fires out you can put out at the time. It's not widespread, so we might find someone gets a new machine and maybe there's a wire unplugged or something like that. Most of them are fairly simple fixes. I guess if anything's 
catastrophic, uh, then we would get the machine picked up and bring it back and probably swap it over or refund the customer and so on. But regardless of how experienced you are with pinball, a newbie or otherwise, it all boils down to the customer's expectations and how they deal with an issue. If you can get along with the customer okay and they're prepared to open the machine up and look at things and fix things, then that's great. But you do get some people who say, I'm not taking the glass off to unstick a ball. You know, the the ball shouldn't have sat up on top of a plastic and you know, I don't feel comfortable opening up the machine. And, and, Is that for real? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So you do get um, people who, who do that. You get plenty of people who ring you three and four years later and say, I bought this pinball machine off you. I'm very disappointed. The machine's broken down. It should, shouldn't should have broken down this soon. And that's when, I, of course, I ask them how long they had it for. And they had a few years. And I go, well, I'm surprised <laughs> I haven't heard from you by now. <laughs> because pinball machines, as you know, you know, you usually don't last four years before you've got to do something to them whether it be a rubber or plastic brakes or a target or something because a ball's flying around hitting stuff at 100 kilometers an hour i don't think i've ever seen a pinball or played a pinball that's actually been perfect whether it be new or otherwise there's always something that just me playing it i notice and go i need to adjust that or that pop bumper's too strong or too weak or are the balls getting stuck here or there. So there's always something you've got to do because they're hand-built, over 3,000 parts, and a major fault to a customer really is a minor fault for us to fix. Playing a game, what's uh, the game you really want to play that you haven't yet? Um, probably Pinball Circus, to be honest. You know, I mean, I've only seen it you know, on video. I've got the engineering drawings for it here um, and, you know, like all the rules and, and the code and everything for what was in it. And, yeah, interesting having like a 3D multi-level mm. pinball. I'd really like to play that game. It sounds like you need a trip to Vegas to the Pinball Hall of Fame where it's located. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's um, – because uh, I think there's only two of them. One's there and uh, the guy who used to manage or run Bally Williams, um, one of the directors, I think, has the other one. So I think there's really only two two around. Yeah, and we still do manufacturing here. People don't realise that. But we're still actively involved in producing new parts and replacement parts. People just, um, we're all sort of off the radar a bit. There's still lots and lots of parts that we get remade that, are no longer available anymore that turn up on our on our website. So, you know, we, we involve just not so much, you know, in manufacturing games because in Australia it's just too hard. Just, you know, it's, it's just expensive and too hard. <laughs> and that's the end of part one of this episode. A quick ad break and then we'll get into the nitty-gritty details of pinball commerce manufacturing and the wheeling and dealing that goes into making remakes and pinball games in general hope you can stick around america you look like you need a holiday a fair income holiday in the land of wonder the land down under now there's a few things i've got to warn you about firstly you're going to get wet because the place is surrounded by water oh and you're going to have to learn to say good day because every day's a good day in Australia. G'day, Paul. G'day, love. Of course, you'll have to get used to some of the local customs, like getting a suntan in the restaurant, playing football without a helmet, and calling everyone mate. Thanks, mate. She's right, mate. Apart from that, 
No worries. You'll have the time of your life in Australia. Of course, we talk the same language. Although you lot do have a funny accent. Come on. Come and say good day. I'll slip an extra shrimp on the barbie for you. Come and say good day. Wayne, you managed to score the rights to all the Williams gear once they went broken. When was that, 1999? Uh, no, we secured the rights, the perpetual rights, um, an exclusive for pinball manufacturing and replacement parts in 2005. Illinois Pinball had a an exclusive license to sell and remanufacture pinball parts for five years and then non-exclusive after that, which meant that um, Williams could then have other people or offer licenses to other people to sell replacement parts as well so but what we did is we secured the uh, perpetual rights exclusive for and so they couldn't issue any more licenses to anybody else for parts other than the existing license that Illinois Pinball had and Illinois Pinball never had any light license or rights to manufacture games in any way shape or form so we secured the rights to that so we could make new games under the Bally trademark and we could make Williams games under a generic trademark, as in no Williams trademark, because Williams was still using their trademarks in the gaming industry and they didn't want to confuse the market. And much like any other trademarks on a pinball, it's classed as third party. So let's say Indiana Jones, for example, well, that is a third party license. So Williams considered their Williams trademark as a third party license. So we could remake the game, but we couldn't put Williams on any previously made Williams game or any new game and put Williams on it. But we could put Bally on it because Bally was actually owned by Caesars Entertainment that owns the casinos and Bally licensed out their trademarks for shoes and Bally Fitness and a whole heap of other things. And they technically licensed the Bally trademark to Williams back when they took over Bally Pinball back in 1987. So Illinois Pinball, do you know who was involved in obtaining that? Was it was it an existing company or was it a third party interest? In regards yeah, to Illinois Pinball, for the first five years. Oh, the first five years. So, so Gene Cunningham, who was a pinball enthusiast, uh, let's say, and quite a big pinball collector, he purchased the leftover inventory that Williams had and was able to then distribute those parts to the existing Williams parts distributors and make new parts, new replacement parts for those distributors exclusive for five years. So that's what what Illinois Pinball did. But But Gene wasn't very tech savvy or anything like that. They didn't really have a website or or anything. Plus, they moved all the parts into a building that was way too small for the purpose. So everything was just stacked on top of each other. They couldn't find anything. They didn't know what half the stuff was. And you had to sit on the phone at 3 o'clock in the morning from Australia trying to um, place an order. Wow. (laughs) And at what point... Was he interested in doing the Big Bang Bar remake? Was that during that five years? What happened is is that the Capcom assets came up for sale and it wasn't very expensive. I'm sure it was like, you know, 100000 or something similar. I don't believe the rights to manufacture any of the Capcom games was on the table either. I don't think 
that was part of the deal. It was pretty much just buy all of the surplus parts and inventory of parts and tooling and things like that was, I believe, the deal because Capcom, the trademark, is a Japanese company. And although they may have licensed out for Capcom USA to use it for certain things, I don't think that was that's transferable. Right. So I don't think at any point in time the Capcom trademark was used like legally. <laughs> but I know Gene ran into the problem when uh, the, the whole point of this is talking about pinball manufacturer. I know he came up with the idea of the Big Bang Bar and then realised economically he was selling the games for a lot less than they were costing him to produce. Yeah, so look, what happened with that too is that as part of the purchase, he ended up with about, I think it was 140 or 160 sets of new old stock boards. And he he, he didn't get the rights to the, let's call it the ASIC chip or the proprietary custom chip on the CPU board. So therefore, he could only make, you know, the, the number of boards that he had. That's all he could ever make in those games. So he was buying some secondhand games at one point and pulling them apart just to get the boards to be able to make a few more Big Bang bars. But So he thought that because he had all those parts that he'd have enough parts to build the games but soon realised that the cost of building the games far exceeded what he thought and then what he did was he borrowed money against his properties because he had a lot of, let's call it politely, low-income properties that he rented out to people and the um, and he borrowed money against those to be able to finish off the um, building these big bang bars because he went into debt for you know hundreds of thousands of dollars wow. to do it. Now, what also happened was the local council they condemned a lot of his properties, so they because um, they weren't fit for people to live in a lot of them, so therefore they took back those properties and bulldozed them and so on. So he owed money on properties technically because he he didn't fix them up for them to stay within code. Uh, So uh, he lost a lot of those properties, plus there was a bit of a recession and unemployment and so on. So the banks ended up foreclosing on most of his property and that's sort of why he went into bankruptcy twice at one point and then the, the second time round. So he sold off some some assets and things to do with Illinois Pinball the first time around to get some money in and then the second time was when he went bankrupt, the company went bankrupt and also personally he went bankrupt as well. Mm. Pinball and property, both tough. Then Matt Cristiano purchased Illinois Pinball from the uh, trustees, I think it is, in the US, and then technically acquired Illinois Pinball. But because Gene went into bankruptcy, Williams pulled the license from him anyway because you can't keep a license with Williams if you go into bankruptcy. They, It's a default. Okay. And that's when you... So that's why there's only one... Yep. There's only one licensee now, which is Planetary Pinball, because the other license that Illinois Pinball had is is finished. It's been cancelled. So when did you step in to gain your uh, rights over the licences? Well, while Illinois Pinball was still around, let's say they acquired a licence back in 99, 2000, and then their license exclusive, you know, licence for five years, they, that, then I took over that, that license basically in 2005. Okay. So when theirs became non-exclusive, 
they could still make parts and they could still do what they were doing as far as parts replacement goes, but they didn't have it exclusive okay. anymore. All right, and that's when you took up the mantle of manufacture. You, you dabble into the manufacturing of pinball. So you were a hobbyist before that, or what was your background and making you want to take this up? Yeah, I mean, I've been into sort of into pinball for you know since I was fifteen. Um, so I've always been sort of an enthusiast in pinball. And ran a business, Mr. Pinball, in Australia that did, you know, we were a distributor for parts for Williams, plus were the the ones that sort of put our hand up for the Pinball 2000s. Initially, we'd sold sort of 80 of those Star Trek The Next Generations, whilst Leisure and Allied, who were the distributor at the time, they only put their hand up to sell 20 of them. So we were sort of into pinball back then, and we... I was looking at manufacturing back before I bought the Williams rights in 2005. We were looking at doing the uh, Steve Irwin game, The Crocodile Hunter. So we were working on development on that, but that was like from scratch, not knowing anything about the kinetics of pinball or how, you know, a ramp should run or how shots go and all those sorts of things. So, you know, we just designed a game basically from scratch. And then when we acquired the rights from Williams, we then took the Williams Pinball Design Library, which basically is on on a computer computer programs, but they have all the information as far as you can drop and drag all the assemblies from this software onto a blank playfield and move it around and do all those sorts of things and and set it up. And you can also see all the previous designs, designs that haven't even been made that never made it to a game, and get an idea as to why a ramp goes in this place and why the slots aren't in the middle because the ball hugs the curve so the slots are further to the left so the ball rolls over the lane switches and all of that sort of thing so we redesigned the croc hunter game based on all the bally williams intellectual property would that be designed by that whole layout by engineers or game designers do you think i mean with the names associated with that software it was just like autocad right but they had um, what they called the pinball design library which basically meant that each part of a pinball was drawn up in autocad and every part had a different layer or a different color addressed to it so therefore you could drag a pop bumper assembly over onto the playfield and and have that to scale have that entire assembly sitting there and you could place it where it goes and that way you could you could lift it up and see underneath whether or not it was going to interfere with any other mechanisms that you were putting in there and that sort of thing. So I think it was just, you know, put together over years of time of designing all the parts and putting them into AutoCAD. Towards the end, they were using SolidWorks um, they were using, which was a similar thing, but a 3D version of So you of end that. up with the Steve Irwin Crocodile Hunter game. So you're heading towards the manufacturing side. Is it a case of, is there local availability for manufacturing of parts in Australia or is it mainly importing everything from overseas? Well, initially, it's way cheaper in the long run to order them in from overseas where they're made in the US because otherwise you've got to tool up for them again in Australia and spend money on tooling plus the cost of manufacturing is too high here. I'll give you one example. I looked at getting pinball legs made in Australia. 
you needed a 200 ton press to make the pinball legs to press them out of cold roll steel the tool was about forty thousand dollars australian and if you wanted to to run the legs you had to run a minimum of ten thousand of them and they were going to be about ten dollars each and then they were going to cost about ten dollars australian each to plate them so so you're up for a heap of money and then but i could buy the legs from america from the original manufacturer for six dollars fifty already plated so even with transport cost and gst didn't exist in those days the goods and services tax so uh yeah bring them over in a container quite right cheaper to have them made in the u.s because um up until recently i think average um, or minimum hourly wage was like nine dollars an hour or i think it's gone up to fourteen dollars an hour in america now but most of the places over here, if you're getting something made, you know, they're charging you, they're paying their staff probably $40, $50 an hour and then charging you 80 to $100 an hour. So it's just a lot more expensive right. and that's on a, on a lot of products. To build one pinball machine, I won't say it's easy, but it's not as difficult because if you need one coin door, you can pick it up from some pinball supplier if you need some balls for the machine or things like that that it's to build one game out of existing parts or parts that are readily available it's a prototype of game that's it's not as difficult but when you are going to build 500 games or a thousand games can't be buying the parts at retail prices from from resellers you need to go to the source that makes them otherwise the, it's like building a car out of spare parts from the spare parts department the local dealership it probably cost a million dollars to build a new commodore in spare parts mm. as against mm. buying the car already built for 30 or forty thousand. yeah so we've got a, a beautifully designed crocodile hunter game We've got parts available from America. Where are we going to assemble it in Australia? Well, we spent about $250,000 at the time on R&D, product development, artwork, programming, circuit boards, cabinet design, all of that sort of thing. And then, unfortunately, uh, Steve Irwin died. So it was paused for a little while, and then we found out that the best picture show company that owns the rights to the crocodile hunter technically hires steve Irwin to play that part in reality so they own the rights to the crocodile hunter and just use steve Irwin to be the crocodile hunter or the face of that so we were stuck in a position then much like mythbusters yeah so exactly so much yeah. like so the situation we were stuck in then was we could proceed and build a pinball machine and call it Australia Zoo. We could use Steve Irwin's image on the machine, but we couldn't use anything to do with the Crocodile Hunter side of it at all. Even Australia Zoo has permission from this Best Picture Show company to use the Crocodile Hunter the trademark yeah. and images at Australia Zoo. So it's it's all, and there's other third parties like Animal Planet, Discovery Channel, all these other things as well that are all involved in that whole franchise situation. Or we could build a, it was suggested to us that we could change the pinball machine entirely. And I think the proposal to us at the time was Bindi Jungle Girl was what we were um, advised that we could do. You met with silence here. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that was the problem. So 
The other thing that happened too was we paid a licensing fee to a company, which is a third party that, that licenses out, and they went broke too. So they went broke with everybody's money that paid them for licensing for not just Croc Hunter, but Disney and everything else that went with it too. So you end up with a, so the Crocodile Hunter people, license holders, they didn't even end up with any money for it. <laughs> yet we mm. yet we paid mm. money out. <laughs> so we mm. just ended up we writing it off, haven't sort of looked back at it. You know, we've got various cabinets and playfields and artwork and, and bits and pieces from it all, but, but the cost to bring it to, to life, I just don't think the licensing is possible anymore. There was never a thought of a re-theme to a different license? Possibly, but at the time when we purchased the license rights from Williams, we had the whole portfolio of Bally Williams games that we could remake or we could make new games under the, the Bally trademark. So that's sort of when we sort of started to look at, you know, we had a lot of demand for Medieval Madness and that sort of thing. So it was already designed. Good the, the parts were readily available. Very good segue. Exactly. So what happened there? <laughs> well, I mean, basically, quite a few things happened. What? First of all, we had to work out how many games we were going to build, and the the number of games that we needed was about a thousand. So we had to get enough orders to build a thousand games because the cost to buy a thousand ball shooter rods or a thousand pop bumper assemblies or whatever the case might be, if you're only building 500 games, it's pretty much the same cost. You're virtually getting, you pay for 500, you get a thousand. So you get a 500 for free almost because it's just the way they price it is most parts they'll, they price on a thousand quantity. So you can win where if there's three pop bumpers, well, your, your thousand's easy. But if there's, you know, you need a thousand of, of one, like coin doors, for example, there's only one place in the world that made the Bally Williams coin doors, and that was Entropy in Taiwan. And they pretty much knew that if you wanted a Bally Williams coin door, whether it be as a replacement part or to put on a game, they will charge you a premium for it. And they increased their minimum order quantity to 1,500 doors. You know, if you didn't need 1,500 of them at one time, but you had to order them at one time. So that's just one part out of, you know, 3,500 parts from machine. So it just gives you an example of how difficult it is to obtain parts to build games in, in larger quantities. That's why Chicago Gaming now uses a HAP door rather than the Bally Williams door because everyone was sort of held to ransom with these coin doors. All right. So were you surprised back in, uh, I think it was, was it at Pinball Expo when they announced, Chicago Gaming announced the Medieval Madness remake, they got a 1,000 orders within the first 24 hours. Did that happen when you announced it in Australia? And what year was that you announced it? Um, I think it was about 2006, roughly. Times are different now than they were back then. There wasn't the social media sort of frenzy that sort of happens in regards to all that. Under my agreement with Planetary Pinball, when I um, transferred the license over to them, I still have rights to build Medieval Madnesses in my agreement with them, but it's just not, and we have built some, you know, we've probably built 20, 30 of them over time, but you know, no one could really tell the difference between what they were as a remake as against an original one, basically, because they played and ran the same, but it's just, 
everything became more difficult as time went on. For example, the ASIC chips um, that go on the CPU boards in the WPC, uh, WPCS and WPC95, those ASICs are NLA, so they're no longer available. They're no longer able to be made, but just due to Rojas and, uh, and, and the lead restrictions and that sort of thing. So we did a one-off run of those, about 10,000 pieces, when we had the chance, even the AVA6, the things for the um, AV board for the WPC95, they wouldn't make those, once again, same lead restrictions. So we redesigned it into a different package. That's why we have a little rider board. But all those things, that cost $50,000 at the time just to redesign that AVA6. So everything becomes harder and harder. Over time. So how many initial orders did you get? Well, originally we got a 1,000. Now, this goes back some time. So originally we got over a 1,000 orders, but then when it came time for people to pay the deposits, then those numbers dropped down to maybe five or 600. And then something happened in time in the US. I think there was a, a recession or something. A lot of people got out, got unemployed. The Aussie dollar dropped to like, you know, 50 five cents or something at the time and when people paid us unlike any other pre-order model that anybody else has ever had we set up a trust account to put that money into so we didn't use anybody's money at all it's just that we had it sitting there and then we could have access to it once the game you know was ready to ship so what happened was we could only put that money into trust in Australian dollars, not in US dollars. So let's say somebody paid us $2,500 deposit in US dollars, then it got converted to Australian dollars, and let's say hypothetically that was $3,000 at the time, Australian. Then when the recession happened and the Aussie dollar dropped and, and some people wanted to cancel and wanted a refund, the money was there in trust, but unfortunately we get that three thousand dollars back in uh, in australian dollars to then refund it back to the customer mm. and it's no longer two and a half thousand us it might be closer to two thousand us so we had to make up that difference ourselves so we so we were getting let's say three thousand dollars at the time but then we were having to refund almost four thousand dollars of people plus all the parts were going up in price because the Aussie dollar was so bad, the the cost of producing this pinball machine was becoming more and more expensive, way more than than what we were actually selling them for. So I would not be able to sleep at night. I, I can't just say, she'll be right, mate, and just build some games and some people will get their games and other people won't get their games. And then, you know... Yeah go broke or whatever the case might be or you know do the wrong thing by people it's just not something that that I was prepared to do so I sort of looked at the costs the increasing costs the the number of orders that were declining and the refunds at the higher refund amount that we had to give people back and just sort of made a decision that if I can't make the game and I can't make money on making the game, then I'm better off pulling the pin on it and not making the game at that time. But I also wanted to make sure that people who did order a game had an alternative. So 
we had worked out at the time, this was right in the middle where we were still working on this game, where we transferred the rights over to Planetary Pinball. And once again, part of those contractual agreements were that Planetary Pinball would supply us with the number of games that we had orders for at a, at a price so that people could swap over from our remake to the to the planetary pinball Chicago gaming remakes that so that nobody would be without a medieval madness if they ordered one. Mm, good business sense and uh, and good ethical sense as opposed to what's happened with some other startups. Well done. <laughs> would you ever go back to considering manufacturing a pinball? Secondhand games with beloved A-list titles are going for crazy prices, but can you make that sort of game nowadays in Australia and still make a, a profit on it, do you think? Um, look, the the main reason that, that we sort of assigned the license to Planetary Pinball was that we I, I had to make a decision. Did I want to leave Australia and move to America and live in America and set up the business in America because all the parts are made there, all the toolings over there, all the designers and everything else is all over there? Or did I just want to hold on to the license and just plot along and just make replacement parts? Um, and I just decided that, you know, it was in the best interest for pinball for somebody in the US, whoever that may have been, is going to be able to do more with the license in the US than what we can in Australia because of the cost of manufacturing and so on. Plus, you know, we had Jersey Jack pinball uh, in the early days that were looking to license the intellectual property office in regards to patents and, and the use of engineering drawings and part suppliers and all of that sort of information that we were working on at the time back in the early days and other people who were looking at doing certain things in pinball too. So it made sense that Rick had packaged all those people up and set up a business model so that he would purchase the, the rights from us and then have these other business models that he would help recover the costs of what paid to me for the license transfer. Um, and right. of course, now, you know, we've got Jersey Jack, you know, one of the, the big sort of pinball manufacturing companies making games with Bally Williams parts in it. You've got Chicago Gaming doing the remakes of the uh, Bally Williams games with mostly Bally Williams parts and everything's in the US and we sell the Chicago Gaming games over here. So we distribute for Planetary Pinball and, and in which case, you know, Chicago Gaming. So I sort of, I'm not making, I guess, probably might make more money per game than if I was making the games to begin with. Free plug. Where do people get hold of all these parts? What's your website? Um, so www.mrpinball.com.au and um, it's MR Pinball. MR Pinball. That's it. Yeah. So MRPinball.com.au. <laughs> yep. You know, we do have quite a lot of parts. Not everything's on our website. You know, we still do a lot of behind the scenes stuff for and in relation to pinball. We do do assist people in things that they're building and manufacturing and you know we work very closely with planetary pinball as well in in assisting them and vice versa so you know it, it's all about getting you know parts out there and, and machines out there we created all the next gen cabinet artwork which is sold globally and you know all the high-end pinball restorers 
around the world uh, use the, the next-gen cabinet art, which basically is producing artwork the same as it looked from original on the same vinyl as Williams used with the same raised texture and feel and durability and UV protection. And the same with all the trans lights that, that we developed. There's more and more products that we develop uh, all the time. We've just developed a new ball trough board for the WPC pinball machines where they used to get hot and all the resistors heated up oh, and yeah. all that sort of thing. Well, we've got a new board. Yep, just replace two myself. That's it. Well, we've got a new board <laughs> that runs as cool as anything, only needs quarter watt resistors, runs at two and a half volts, and you'll never need to change it again. It's got a little voltage regulator on it that controls the voltage that's running to it because that game was never designed to have, you know, 14 plus volts running that board. So it just, it just no. you know, burnt out over time and the resistors got hot and mm. so on, so on. So lots of, lots of different products that we develop that a lot of people never really know about. Plus, we've still got a ton of medieval parts if anyone needs medieval parts from wiring harnesses. <laughs> you can build your own by spare parts. I think I've got, you know, I think I've got, pellet loads of um, aprons, you know, the black medieval aprons and mm. even the, the three-piece metal ramps, you know, the, the wire form ramps and all sorts of um, stuff, all the you know, all the metal parts and so on. But, you know, that which is great because we're helping everybody, um, you know, fix up their games. Look, I want to thank you for your time. I think it's great to have this documented and I wish you luck with the business. It's indispensable as far as spare parts, decal, cabinet decals, restorations go, I like your business decisions you made in the past. And I like the fact that you try to dive into the, the big manufacturing and settled on to the, uh, the smaller parts and refurbishments manufacturing and keeping pinball alive. So thanks again for your time. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure, you know, and, and vice versa too. I mean, you've, you've, uh, I thank you for what you do for pinball and you go to all the shows overseas and you meet all the people over there and, uh, very enthusiastic about pinball and, uh, and, and I love that. Just one more thing which you touched on before I go, and that is with the demand that's happened due to COVID and younger generation of people coming into pinball and collecting pinball and the prices of pinball machines have gone absolutely ballistic. I mean, we're 54 games behind at the moment in used games to recondition. Um, so anyone looking for a job, they can recondition pinballs, contact me because we're flat out. It's gone like that. Prices are going to keep on going up and up and up. Pinball companies are going to get bigger and bigger and sell more games. I mean, who would have thought Jersey Jack could sell 5,000 Guns and Roses pinballs? It's just out, of, out mm. of control throughout all those manufacturing companies. But still, the cost of manufacturing in Australia, uh, I still believe, is, is too high. The only way you'd be able to do it would be to have a group of people get together, all of them throw a million dollars into the pot as like a private company and may do it that way. But as far as using... Um, people's money to try and fund company to manufacture pinballs I, I think that's probably a mistake and I think it's been proven several times in the past that that's not the way tough to go. times tough times indeed all right Laney thank you very much thank you and there we have it I hope you enjoyed that rather long chat I had we actually recorded that in two parts with the first part being recorded rather recently and the second part about manufacturing recorded a few months ago before I even thought about starting the podcast, which is probably why the two things sound a little different. But I wanted an insight into the history of Wayne at Mr. Pinball, 
the history of the Crocodile Hunter game and the Medieval Madness remake that was slated, plus find out what's happening with the company now. So again, any feedback, happy to hear from you. Aussie Pinball Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll leave you with another great Aussie music track, which I particularly enjoy. One of the best songs ever written about having a one-night stand. Originally released in 1985, charting in 1986, but re-released a couple of times uh, and improving in its position on the charts each time. Hunters and collectors, throw your arms around me. Catch you next time. I will come to you at night time. I will raise you from your sleep. I will kiss you in four places. I'll go running along your street. I will squeeze the life out of you. You will make me laugh and make me cry. We will never forget it. You will make me call your name and I'll shout it to the blue summer. We may never meet again So shed your skin and let's get started Your feet.